Hello, I'm Russell Davis, and across the stairway to the stars, this time falls the giant shadow, six foot four inches as it leaves him, of Sir Tim Rice, lyricist, librettist, showman, entrepreneur, rock and roll archivist, cricket fanatic, and if he isn't the holder of some sort of medal for generating British exports, he ought to be. Sir Tim, welcome. Thank you very much. It occurs to me that this is now the Rice-Davis hour. Yes. Which, once upon a time, <laughs> might have signified something entirely different. Well, if you're over 60, you get that, I think. Yes, yes. Mandy Rice-Davis is actually 20 days older than you, precisely. I looked that I up. did not know that. Yes, yes. At the time she was a, a prominent West End entertainer, shall we say, in 1963, you were either an articled clerk and a lawyer's for, or at the Sorbonne. I can't quite work out which. Well, both, really. I remember reading about the whole Profumo affair in 1963 on a beach in Corsica in a Sunday Times about two weeks late, and I was on a holiday, a hitchhiking holiday with a friend of mine, and we were finishing our studies or alleged studies in Paris by a hitchhiking trip around Europe. We never got much further than Corsica. And then later that summer, after working on the petrol pumps, I then became an article particle at a, at a firm right, of solicitors. Yeah. But the conventional university place that everybody went for at that time, you eschewed. Now, was there a, did you have an instinct about that? Because clearly you were right. Well, I don't know if I was right, although I think by not going to university, I learnt quite a bit about the realities of life in London. And I also doubt whether I would have met Andrew Lloyd Webber if I'd gone to university. So it wasn't really a conscious act of rebellion. I just couldn't quite see the point, and it was rather a lazy decision not to go. And I don't think in those days there was quite so much pressure to go to university as there is now. But certainly from the school I went to, Lansing College, which was a fine, privileged public school, there was an expectation that anybody who wasn't totally stupid would try and get to Oxford or Cambridge. Yes. But I didn't even try. But being a rock and roll star was not on the curriculum no. at Lansing College. <laughs> and no. that's what you really had in mind. Well, if, if, if I have a criticism of my school days or my school, it's that the career's um, end of things was really totally emphasised onto extremely conventional jobs like lawyer, doctor, maybe at a pinch advertising or the church, or something like that. It wasn't really geared to people who played pop records all day and had a group that tried to emulate Cliff and the Shadows. This was pre-Beatles, you've got to remember. And the big step you took, you went straight into it. You went to EMI, and that was... Well, I went into law. I, I, I kind of felt that because of um, uh, not going to university, I should still do something fairly respectable. So I became an article clerk in a firm of solicitors, which was my heart was never in it. And I took one or two law exams and didn't pass. And I'd always passed exams before without too much effort. So this was a big wake-up call. Mm. And I think if I'd gone to university, I would have probably got a bad degree without doing any work. And I wouldn't really have had any wake-up call to reality until quite a bit later. Did that um, brush with the law, as you might say, ever come in useful? Did you feel... It did. It taught me a lot about accountancy, putting balance sheets in order, things like that. I did learn a bit, obviously, about convincing, but nothing really that exciting. But I was in the evenings and weekends, I was writing songs or writing ideas for books. And eventually, while I was still a law student, I met Andrew through a book publisher, bizarrely, and then decided in 1966, having been a failure at law for two or three years, to get a job in the music business, which hadn't really crossed my mind. I was so dim. No one ever said to me, you like 
popular music, why don't you go into EMI or Decca or something? No one really said that, and I was too stupid to think it up myself. When you went into EMI, was it with a view to engaging directly with the music? Or yes, in the end, it dawned on me that being a law student and being a lawyer was not what I was cut out to be. You could get a job in the music business, and you didn't have to be a pop star to be in the music business. And I was clearly not going to be a pop star. So I went for an interview at EMI and got a job as a management trainee. And at that point, EMI Records were the biggest record company in the world, even though they were British-based. It was that term, management trainee, that made me wonder, because that sounds as if you were destined for the business side of things. Oh, yes, absolutely. I was still writing songs. I'd met Andrew by then, so we were trying to write things on the side. But unlike Andrew, I never really thought I was going to be anything other than a businessman in a proper job. And I enjoyed working at EMI, and I met lots of people who were behind the scenes, and I met some of them who were in front of the scenes, like Cliff Richard and co. And I knew a lot about the business. I knew a lot about popular music. I was aware of what was happening. And I always thought by about the end of the century, I'd be head of EMI in Barcelona or something. (laughs) (laughs) And EMI, I suppose, mainly parlophone, had its comedy thing going at the time, didn't you? And you were part of that for a while. I mean, the the scaffold you had. The parlophone and Columbia labels were all less independent as the um, years rolled by, partly because they took away the beautiful red and green labels and they all became black and HMV was blue and that became black. But the Beatles, of course, were on parlophone. And parlophone had a reputation for being a very good label for comedy. But that was slightly before my time. It had Peter Sellers and it had Bernard Cribbins, uh, Mike Sarn. I think he was on Parlophone. It was very much a sort of funny label. Um, And George Martin was very much involved with that. But the Beatles again changed that. But one mustn't forget that Parlophone did have some good pop acts. It had Adam Faith, it had Matt Monroe, it had some deals with American labels. So it wasn't just comedy. But the scaffold thing, which were built, I suppose, as a satirical... I mean, satire was a big... They were great scaffolds. With their Beatles connection, because Paul McCartney's brother was one of the... But you can be heard. I'm singing on Lily the Pink, yes. It's my first number one, I always say. There were endless sessions in which Mike McCartney, in particular, was very keen to get people to sing on it. Famous people, and I think um, Graham Nash sang a verse, and various friends came along and warbled on the chorus, and... I, too, joined in the chorus on that. Jennifer Eccles was Graham Nash. That was yes, a, that was a Holly's hit. Holly's hit. And, and, and the verse, I mean, I think, as you know, is an old army song, or rather rude, I think, in its original version. And um, the scaffold, Roger McGough principally wrote lots of funny verses. When Graham Nash came into the studio, they wrote a Jennifer Eccles verse for him. How many records are there about, do you think, where you're audible? Uh, quite a lot, <laughs> isn't it? There's well, there are scattering... quite a, Yes, there, there's some pretty terrible ones. I, I made one or two under my own name, and I made another two under Huddersfield Transit Authority, which was a sort of send-up of the Chicago Transit Authority, who became Chicago. And I'm sure I'm on quite a few records. I've got most of them at home, but they haven't actually set the charts alight. <laughs> but arriving at the MI, you, you brought your own kit of heroes, I assume, from the 50s, including Elvis and so yes, on, whom you yes. later saw under good and bad circumstances. Yes, exactly. I worked with EMI for two years, 66 to 68, and then Norrie went solo, and I worked for Norrie as his PA. It was really quite a small company then. It was me, Norrie, Nick Ingman, who was a very, very gifted orchestrator. And that was great fun because Norrie was still looking after Cliff and Co. and, as we said, the scaffold. So I was very much a 
big part of making these records. I didn't take much artistic credit, but I was a key factor. I had to everything from book the sessions to get the musicians to supervising some of the mixes, and it was really a terrific education for the music business. Some names that come back to me that you mentioned, but some of them only in passing. Things like Ricky Nelson, you had, uh, and I did too. I had rather. Uh, uh, Ricky Nelson. I was a great Ricky Nelson fan. I did meet him once very briefly in New York um, when he took part in an oldies show at Madison Square Garden, which was the show he went down rather badly at because all the other acts were oldies acts and they all sang their hits. And Ricky Nelson came on and sang his current stuff, which they didn't want. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to hear Hello, Mary Lou and all that. Mm-hmm. He seemed a bit depressed afterwards, but he then wrote a song about it called Garden Party, which became a massive hit, his biggest hit for years and years. It was a strange occasion to see him go down unfairly badly and then transform his career by singing about it. Would I be right in thinking that the Everly Brothers really were the... Oh, I love the Everly Brothers. I still do. I mean, they are exquisitely brilliant um, singers. And they almost sang as one person. I mean, every little up and down, every little bending of notes they would do together in thirds. And I met them both. I've got to know them. They're not that close to each other, which is sad. Mm. And that probably hampered their later career a bit, to put it mildly. I was was puzzled, although it was unmissable as a record, because another chart topper, by Kathy's Clown. Because <laughs> yes. the, the lyric didn't make a lot of sense to me. It sounded as if it was written in code. Well... <laughs> It was probably their biggest record, and it's a great sound. I mean, for 1960, it's got a great sort of Phil Spector-ish sound, but it's not aping Phil Spector. Actually, Phil Spector hadn't really got going then. Clearly, the song, Russell, I'm surprised you didn't get this, clearly this girl called Kathy is treating the Everly Brothers very badly. Oh, sure, but they were um, used to that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the thing that always intrigued me about the Everly's, and I always wanted to ask them but never really did, was why Phil never did any solos, and I often wonder if that was a problem between them. Because Don, who's got a superb voice, he would sing all the solos. So with the result that on some of the records, Phil was only on the chorus, and... Um, I, I sort of wondered why Phil didn't sometimes get a chance in the limelight. I mean, he did make solo records himself, which were quite successful. Nothing really puzzling about it, but uh, just at the time. And, of course, Del Shannon was the inspiration of your Huddersfield Transit. On yes, I, I loved Del Shannon's records, and Runaway was one of the great pop records of all time, and I actually covered it under the name Huddersfield Transit Authority some years later, but Dell had a wonderful falsetto, which I don't. I don't even have a wonderful voice, but I got an opera singer to come in. I think she was a student from the London College of Music to come in and do the wah-wah-wah-wah-wah bits, which Dell did effortlessly. It was quite a fun record. It nearly was a hit. I think if there had been a top 75 in those days, it would have got into the top 75. It sold a few thousand copies, but didn't get into the top 40. He came to a rather sad end. He did. He shot himself. It was awful. I don't really know why, but obviously he was deeply depressed. He apparently could have joined the Travelling Wilburys, which was the outfit that George Harrison and Jeff Lynne and Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty... Well, they recorded Runaway as well. Yes. Well, they were going to... I understand the story was that when Roy Orbison died, they were going to replace Roy with Dell. And that, I would have thought, would have been a terrific boost to his life. Jeff Lynne, the British record producer genius um, from ELO, made a record with Del not that long before he died, which was a hit, Sea of Love, in America. And for me, Del Shannon was up there with Roy Orbison. He was a you know great singer of doomed songs. Every song of his was about lost love or things going wrong. 
<laughs> Which record was it where you billed yourself as Victor Trumper? Oh, yes. Great Australian cricketer. Victor Trumper, yes. That was a record called The President's Song. And I had this idea of... It was a time of Watergate, so it would have been 74... And I wanted to just sing a song which listed all the presidents, which I thought was rather a romantic-sounding list. And I wrote a little tune, and I sang the president's song. And after each president who had been assassinated, I left the gap, Abraham Lincoln, Garfield, McKinley, John F. Kennedy, and stopped the song for a second and then continued. And then the song ended, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and then ended abruptly. And this was interpreted totally wrongly by radio stations in America as an incitement to assassinate Nixon, <laughs> which was not my intention. And it didn't get the airplay that I'd hoped for for that reason. But again, it's a strange collector's item. And I chose the name Victor Trumper, so I didn't want to put it out under my own name. And I remember the, the American record company, it was only issued in America. They said, well, why Victor Trumper? And I said, well, that's the name of an Australian cricketer. And then I got a letter from their lawyer saying, will we be sued by Victor Trumper if we use his name? And I said, no, no, he died in 1915, so you really shouldn't worry. <laughs> well, none of those presidents we can be sure ever played cricket, but Victor Trumper certainly did. And we should talk about cricket. Is it disappointing that cricket isn't better represented musically? I mean, you've done your best to rectify that, of course, with a show called Cricket. Yes. That was one of its titles. Isn't it? <laughs> it's interesting because I think dramatic or rather fictitious drama about sport, any sport, is very rarely as dramatic or exciting as the real thing. Boxing seems to be a bit of an exception to this. There have been lots of great movies about boxers, fictitious boxers, which seem to work. But great drama about football or cricket, on the whole, doesn't really work. Although Andrew Lloyd Webber and I did do a little oratorio, which we um, called Cricket with the subtitle Hearts and Wickets, which was a sort of little funny story lasting about 20 minutes about a cricketer who's torn between sorting out his love life and batting to save his side from defeat. As he goes out to bat, he notices his girlfriend going off with a cad and he has to make the decision, do I stay in and bat on or do I get out deliberately and sort out my love life? But of course, as any, any gentleman would, he stays in to save the side. Then he goes and sorts out his love life. <laughs> Let's get back to Abbey Road and EMI. The young hopefuls you were dealing with, I mean, you're surrounded by uh, aspiring singers. At that One or two of them, known to me, Ros Hanneman, I knew. Did you know her? Yes, I did. Well, she was very good. She was the Evening Standard Girl of the Year. Yes. In a very, very politically incorrect competition. I always spelt her, or we did in Cambridge, R-O-S, but you have her in your book as two Oh, S's. you knew her from Cambridge? Well, yes. she was sort of hung around Cambridge singer, and well, yes. photographed a lot as, yes. a, as a model. Well, I, I met her. She was called Ross Hanneman, and I think that was her, that obviously was her stage name. Mm. And she had a manager, and, uh, you know, she was already trying to make it as a singer. And Andrew and I made a couple of records with her. They were the first songs of ours, our joint songs that we had released. And they weren't bad, but they, they weren't good enough. And... We were about to make a third single with her when she met Mark Wirtz, who was the creator of um, the Teenage Opera, which never quite got off the ground. There was a big hit single. And she married Mark, and he, not unreasonably, took over her career. So that was it. We had just two singles with her. Did you have any interest in musicals at that time? You were writing pop songs. Oh, I did have. By that time, when I was at EMI, I'd already met Andrew, and oh. Andrew... Andrew was seriously interested in musicals. He wanted to be Richard Rogers, and I kind of vaguely wanted to be Elvis, but I'd kind of given up on that. 
as that was clearly not going to happen. But Andrew was determined to be the writer of great musicals. And I don't think he ever had any doubt that he wouldn't make it. I mean, he really was confident. And when I first met him, he said, this is what I want to do, and I need a good chap to write words, and do you know anything about musicals? Well, I knew a bit about musicals, but not the shows. I just knew all the albums. My parents had a fair selection of the usual suspects, you know, West Side Story, My Fair Lady, Oklahoma Carousel, all these great shows. And I knew all the soundtracks very well. But strangely, I never had any huge desire to go and see the shows. I was such a vinyl junkie, I was happy listening to the record. It's always said by supposed experts that the big rule with musicals is to put your greatest effort into the book. Book, book, book. Yes. You've got a strong storyline, all the rest of it. I think that's but true. But in your early days, you, you'd have a collection of songs and no show at all, no book. I mean, yes. You'd have a full album, but no show to go with it. Now, does that work anymore? <laughs> we, you, could you do it now? Do you mean by that we made an album? Well, you made an album, or in some cases a double album. Yes, but, but there was good stories. I mean, the story of Jesus is a pretty good story, and the story of Ava Perron is a pretty good story. I mean, it's a very clear, linear tale, yeah. Evita. And, but there was and, nothing you could put on the table to a producer and say, this is the book, by the way, we've got the songs No, here. but we could say, here's a great story which we are telling operatically, and I think the reason that Evita and Superstar and indeed Joseph worked so well was largely because the basic inspiration for the work was a strong tale, mm. which inspired great music from Andrew, and then I would put lyrics to that. Looking back over your lyrics, you've been critical of them sometimes, that it would have been better to say such and such, and all these wishful adjustments that you've made are in the direction of correctness, you know, a scrupulosity in getting proper rhymes and a, and a sense of completeness yes. in the lyric, which I applaud. But we're in a generation now that doesn't seem to understand the need for that or understand it at all, indeed. No, I think you're right. I mean, most, most pop songs have bad rhyming or no rhyming, which may not matter. I mean, I sometimes think, why do things have to rhyme? But there is a sort of neatness and a beauty and a, a sort of wit, automatic, even in a song which isn't meant to be funny. Which, well, which, I, I don't and, and mind so no rhyme. Satisfying. No rhyme at all, I don't mind. I mean, Moonlight no, in Vermont I, has no rhymes. Some Enchanted Evening has it's, very few. It's when it's meant to have rhymes, yes. but they're rotten It's ones. rhyming time and fine, yes. which I've done. I mean, when we did Joseph, we wrote it for one school, and I didn't really ever think it was going to be subjected to, you know, the big West End treatment. And there were one or two rather lazy rhymes which were in the show. Then, of course, the show took off, and... I was kind of stuck with them. I have made a few adjustments because I cringe if I hear time rhyming with mine. Mm. And I tried to get back to pure rhymes wherever I could. But the one or two, like, his astounding clothing took the biscuit, quite the smoothest person in the district. That's not actually mm. a pure rhyme. But I did try and take that out. But they said, oh, that's very funny. We would keep that in. And, of course, that is quite clever, but it's not a pure rhyme. Yes. I mean, Pajamas Farmers is much better. Yes. Um, and most of it is, is pretty well rhymed, he said arrogantly 45 years later. But even in Superstar, there's one or two not quite right pure rhymes, and I, I wouldn't do that now. In the imagined days of uh, Rogers and Hart and the Gershwin brothers and so on, the picture of songwriters was two chaps at a piano, one yep. of them playing, the other one sort of leaning over. <laughs> and, uh, and that's I was the, the way they over. Were, but did, or did that happen? I mean, did you collaborate well, around the piano? I we certainly worked around a piano, Andrew and I did, in as much as he would say, how's this tune, what do you think of this? And once I'd written a lyric, I would obviously come to him and say, this is what I've written, let's see how it sounds. But if I was actually writing, getting down to the nitty-gritty of writing a lyric, I would have to go into a different room with no sounds around. I would perhaps have a cassette 
of the tune to remind me. But usually, once you've heard the tune four or five times, it's in your head. I don't need to keep referring back to a tape. But certainly me leaning on the piano while Andrew bashed out a tune, yes, that happened. Mm -hmm. But the creative bit, by and large, he would write the music and I would write the lyrics in different rooms. A lot of the writing partnerships of the alleged golden age of Broadway and uh, Hollywood were uneasy, to say the least. And the more we learn about Rice and and Lloyd Webber, the more we see that you were not terribly well-matched temperamentally anyway. I mean, he would have tantrums and walk out and things, and you'd be accused of being... Laid Too back. laid back about Lazy, everything. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I think, obviously, we are basically different characters, um, which I think was part of the reason why we did so well together. Mm, yes. And, of course, my reaction to people blowing their tops is to get more laid back. You know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I, I did work very hard. I always try to explain to composers, not just Andrew, that writing lyrics takes a lot longer. Yes. Because um, it's, it really is perspiration as much as inspiration. You can write a tune, if you can do it at all, you can write a tune very quickly. I mean, I can write a tune very quickly. I could write a tune in three minutes. Yes, and it comes out in a stream. Yes, but it wouldn't be any good. Mm. I mean, mm. I might by fluke a good tune once in 20 years. Yeah. But writing a lyric, even writing a bad lyric, takes time. Um, and writing a good one takes a long time. And, of course, if you've got a wonderful tune like the tune for Don't Cry Me, Argentina, I wrote something like eight or nine verses to it because the tune was used as Oh, What a Circus. It was used as Don't Crack Me, Argentina. It was used in other parts of the show, quite rightly, because it's a great theme. But it takes a little longer to write eight or nine different versions of the verse than it does if you're the composer, when you only have to write one. Throughout that whole collaboration, the importance of the female star was always paramount, wasn't it? Because you had very good yep. ones. You had Yvonne Elliman, you had yes. Julie Covington on record, Elaine Page on the stage, Barbara Dixon, and so on. As long as you had one of those, it was going to work. Yes. There, there is something about theatre and great divas, if you like, female singers, that's very important. And the public seemed to go for that more than great men in musical theatre. There are some wonderful men in musical theatre, like Michael Ball, for example, at the moment, who is outstandingly good. But on the whole, and Michael perhaps is the exception that proves the rule, the most significant musical stars over the eras tend to be female, or at least there's always a female presence in any show. The one I know best of those, and I worked with her a lot, and very fond of her, actually, was Julie Covington. And that still remains, after all this time, one of the most perplexing stories in modern yeah, showbiz, I feel. Well, she made this wonderful recording of, of Argentina, the first person ever to sing it. And we tried like mad to get her into the show, but she didn't want to do it. And maybe quite rightly, I'm not sure she was totally suited for that kind of role, entirely singing. She's not a belter. She's not a theatrical singer as much as, say, Elaine is. And maybe, in a way, it was better that Elaine did it. I mean, Elaine was absolutely superb in the role. And I'm not sure Julie, who is just a wonderful actress and a wonderful recording voice, I'm not sure she would have been it would have been right for her to do it. So I think her instinct was probably correct. The Bertie Wooster project was an interesting one, wasn't it? It's hard to regret that you didn't pursue it because when it was pursued as Jeeves, it was a big flop. But it ought to have suited you perfectly. Yes, it was... After we did Superstar, which was an unexpected mega hit for us, we thought, uh, what do we do now? And we decided to have a go at something. We're both great fans of P.G. Woodhouse and we both thought it was a good idea to do something that was totally unexpected after Superstar, and indeed after Joseph, which on the back of Superstar had become pretty well known as well. And we thought, why not try Jeeves and Wooster, do a sort of rather old-fashioned musical? 
and we sat down to do it and we wrote Andrew wrote some lovely tunes and I wrote two or three lyrics but I got more and more depressed by it I felt that I'm not being as funny as P.G. Woodhouse which is manifestly true it's in the texture of the prose uh, it, it, it's it, very yeah. difficult and I don't think for a composer he feels that he's up against a genius so obviously as I was and in the end with great reluctance because I thought maybe I'm being balmy but I knew my work wasn't that great and I decided I said look I really don't want to go on with this and then I'd got this idea for Ava Perron and I said this is what we should be doing and Andrew was intrigued by Ava Perron but didn't really want to do it at that point and he said no I'm going to go ahead with Jeeves and he got Alan Akebourne on board and Alan Akebourne of course great great theatre man and I thought well obviously I've, I've missed out on what's going to be a mega hit but it it didn't work but it's had a bit of a life since. It's there. It's a nice sort of almost chamber musical, really. Um, and, of course, there have been so many interpretations of Jeeves and Wooster on TV, on stage, and often they work, but they only work if you retain as much as possible of P.G. Woodhouse. Yeah. And by turning it into song, I found I was losing a lot of the magic, which... I'm not saying it's impossible. Maybe somebody better than I could have carried it off, but it even slightly defeated Alan Akebourne. On the subject of these musical partnerships, I forgot to say just now, I talked to Lieber and Stoller once, oh, only once, lovely ones. in their office, and my guess would be they occupy a position in the business that you would regard as almost ideal because they were pioneers of rock and yes. roll and remained that, but they could also do so much else, a chanson more or less in the they, European fashion. They, they, they were brilliant. They never actually wrote a show, I think they wanted to. They were working on one before Jerry Lieber died on um, Oscar Wilde, which they very kindly sent to me, and it was great, but it perhaps was not a show for right now. Mm. Um, but I was such a fan of their work, and Jerry Lieber's lyrics, and indeed Mike's music, were definitely Broadway standard, easily. They were up there for me with you know Alan J. Lerner and Cole Porter and all that. With great lines such as, I told her I was a flop with chicks. I've been that way since 1956. <laughs> One of my favourite couplets of all time. And I was honoured to meet them both. But they plied their trade through blues, rhythm and blues records. They were writers for pop records, for rock records, for blues records. And they were very funny. And they were also liking songs like, Is That All There Is? Yes. Or in Jerry's case, Spanish Harlem. They would write very serious songs. I mean, Spanish Harlem had been in a show... It would have been a standout song in a show. And there were so many other great things they wrote. A lot of the songs they wrote for Elvis were actually sometimes even obscured by Presley's huge star quality. You tended to forget how great the song was mm. because Elvis sang 20 or 30 Lieber Stoller songs. And I mean, a song like Jailhouse Rock is absolutely a fantastic song and would have graced any Broadway show. But we tend to think of it as Elvis's song. And he did a wonderful version of it. But it's a great comedy rock number. It took decades for people to work out what was actually going on in that lyric, which is yes. a very good lyric. Yes, number 47 said to number three, yeah. you're the cutest jailbird I ever did see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sure would be delighted with the company. Come on and do the jailhouse rock with me. Yes. <laughs> it's great stuff. Somebody made a kind of what you term a jukebox musical out of their stuff. Yes, the, yeah. um, well, what was it called? It was a, it was a big hit. I saw it. Um, Smoky, Smoky Joe's, Joe's Cafe. Cafe yeah. And um, it was a very early jukebox show. And it was great because all the songs that they'd wrote for the Drifters, for the Coasters, for Elvis, you know, great, great artists and great songs. What was it like to move into the Disney world eventually? You've done it very successfully. Well, we know that Disney has, has its own worldview. It almost has an ideology, really. Is that something to be resisted? 
I really enjoyed my time at Disney. A, it kind of resuscitated my career. I was, you know, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do any more shows at that time. And I was lucky enough to be nabbed by Disney. And I'd always loved, as a child, cartoons or animated features, as I learned to call them at Disney. Yes. And I was an expert on American comics and American youth culture. I mean, pre-youth culture almost. I was aware of a lot of American characters, apart from the obvious ones like Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. I knew all about people like Little Lulu and Howdy Doody and um, really fairly, I mean, they were big, big stars in the States, but it's, they were creations that weren't known at all in England. So I had no trouble fitting in with the people of my generation but who were American at Disney, and I really enjoyed working with them, and I was doing what I felt I could do, i.e. write lyrics, but I was doing it for a new medium, and I was doing it with new people, and I was doing it in a new country, and everything about it was very refreshing, and I think if I had carried on with shows at that point, they would have got more and more stale and more and more uninspired. But you did experience Disney as a theatrical producer as well. Well, well that was I, a weird I thing. It brought me back to theatre. Having been very fortunate to do The Lion King, which took a long time, my first meeting, it was just one bit of paper and one cartoon, one drawing on the wall. No composer. Um, we didn't even have the final directors. I was really in at the beginning of The Lion King, which was fascinating. I was then briefly taken off The Lion King to help out on Aladdin. I then went back to The Lion King and I was involved in two huge animated features, Aladdin and The Lion King. And then, to my amazement, Disney went into theatre and they decided the first project would be Beauty and the Beast, which had been a big hit movie, which I hadn't been involved in. But the composer of Beauty and the Beast, who was um, brilliant, Howard Ashman, died and... I was asked to come in and do some filler songs for Beauty and the Beast on stage with Alan Menken. And Alan and I got on really well and we wrote one or two songs. We'd also written Whole New World, which became a big hit from Aladdin. And suddenly I was back in the theatre, almost unexpectedly. Then they decided to do The Lion King as theatre, which I thought was bonkers, but it wasn't. And then they said, well, why don't you guys, me and Elton... Uh, who'd done the stuff for The Lion King, why don't you do a Disney theatrical show from scratch? And the idea they came up with was Saida, and we did that, and it was a big hit on Broadway, and I went to see it only last weekend in, in the Czech Republic. Well, they can see it in the Czech Republic, but it's never been professionally no. staged here. Well, I sent off a text to Tom Schumacher, who's head of Disney Theatricals, who's a good friend of mine, and I said, Tom, this is the seventh country I've seen Aida in, and it's done pretty well in nearly all of them. When is it going to come to London? Yes. And I'm waiting for the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a Disney legend. I'm a can... Disney legend, yes. yes. What does I, that involve? It gets you free into Disney uh, parks. <laughs> 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 well, it, well, they have a ceremony once a year, and it's quite fun, because I met Richard Todd, who has made a Disney legend. And what they do, basically, is once a year, they choose half a dozen or ten people who've contributed to the Disney oeuvre over the years. And it went right back to, you know, people like Richard Todd, who was in Rob Roy, which was a wonderful film from my childhood. And Maurice Chevalier was made one, although he wasn't around to pick it up. It's a bit of a PR stunt, but it's great fun. The thing about Disney is that what it's done over the years is so much a part of almost every Western child's culture and upbringing, whatever they may think of it when they grow up. But most of it's pretty good. I mean, it's an extraordinary company in many, many ways.
I mean, how, it how has many... become too big and taken over too much of the world, but there's some great work there. How many different shows of yours are running uh, currently across the world? Do you keep a tally of them? Not really. I mean, I suppose I've done about 15 shows um, ever, some of which I've not done all of, like Beauty and the Beast. And most of them seem to potter along somewhere. Do you um, drop in on them? I try to. Well, I did drop in in Prague on Aida, mm. and then I went to a town in the eastern part of the Czech Republic called Ostrova, where they were doing Joseph, and it was quite a big production, and that was in Czech as well. I'm not sure Joseph translates that well into foreign languages because I think the translators, when they get a Vita or Superstar or something like that, they can translate it fairly literally. Um, when you get Joseph... And you get a line like, his astounding clothing took the biscuit. Mm. The Czech translator is going to think, what does this mean? <laughs> yes. And he looks up, takes the biscuit, and he sees this means very impressive. So he'll translate it as, his coat was very impressive, mm. which is accurate, but not very funny. Yeah. So I think Joseph is a very hard one to pull off. I mean, the music's great. But in the version I saw, it didn't get that many laughs, although it was brilliantly performed and very well staged. Will you be finding a, a theatrical justification for having a trip to Australia during the test season? I'm, well, funnily enough, <laughs> <laughs> The Lion King is returning to Sydney um, on December the 12th. So I think I shall reluctantly have to go out there and witness the opening. I don't think you had political ambitions, but people tried to foist them on you, didn't they, for well, a while? Well, I think they because... future prime minister and everything. But now well, it's come down to, to... If I'm going to anger you politically, I, I just say the words wind farms. Oh, I? yes. Well, I think um, because I was one of a rare breed or a rare admitting it breed who was not totally left-wing in show business, I think the sort of Conservative Party loved this and they jump on anybody who might have said in one point of their life they actually voted Conservative. Although I did write an article some years ago in The Spectator pointing out that the Conservatives have long since lost all interest in me because they're only interested in people under 45, really, because they reckon they've got your vote if you're older. You won't change. They may be wrong on that. But I sort of feel now that I'm not really convinced by any particular party. I get aroused by individual topics such as wind farms, which I think are a disgrace and a blight on the environment and don't work. And, of course, you say something about anti-wind farms and it gets you a lot of, lot of press. But um, as I am anti-wind farms, I'm quite delighted to get a bit of press on it. Jolly good. Well, there are an awful lot of things I would love to continue talking to you about. We have run out of time. Um, I wish continued success to um, From Here to Eternity well, and a lovely trip to Sydney. I'm sure that'll be good and I hope we win. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Russell, for talking about things I don't normally talk about. Well, that's excellent. Sir Tim Rice, thank you very, very much. Thank you. My thanks also to my producer, Sarah Cropper. This was a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online, on digital radio and on 88 to 91 FM.